0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Preisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Sabrina Imbler, a writer and science journalist living in Brooklyn. Their first chapbook, Dyke Geology, was published by Black Lawrence Press. Their essays and reporting have appeared in various publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic Catapult, and Sierra. Their debut essay collection is called How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in 10 Sea creatures, Sabrina. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I um, I'm in awe of your knowledge. So, so I'm sorry we had to start very basic and just take us through what drew you to studying sea creatures and how did you get into it?
1: Yeah, I guess at the very beginning, I grew up in California by this beach called Half Moon Bay. And I would go there a lot with my family and like see beached whales and see tide pools and like anemones and crabs inside the tide pools, which I think was like a really wonderful portal, like into a part of nature that didn't seek to harm me because I had really bad allergies to like grass and pollen. So whenever <laughs> I'd go into a forest or a meadow, I would like have an asthma attack, but the ocean was very safe in that regard. And I also, when I was a baby, my parents decorated my nursery to be like under the sea themed. So sometimes I really feel like I was indoctrinated, but I'm happy. I'm really happy that, yeah, I, I love sea creatures. And I guess like since then have just always really found like communion with various creatures in aquariums or in the ocean. And have like sort of tried to encounter as many of them as as I could.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit because the bibliography for the book is, or the notes section is pretty substantial. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the research that you did.
1: Yeah. So I found a lot of the I encountered a lot of the sea creatures inside the book when I was doing this, I was freelancing for an ocean nonprofit writing like aggregate of content when I was very early out in media. And I was doing you know these various internships that paid me like eight or 10 or $12 an hour. But mm-hmm. I also wanted to like go out in the city. So I got this <laughs> second job and I basically would just write stories like, you'll never guess like what the inside of a dolphin vagina looks like, or like this seal was found on this farm. Why? And it was like, the seal walked there. Fascinating. Who wouldn't want to read all of that? It was the site has been shuttered, which is like, I think for the best for my content, because it was just, I was just summarizing like real reporting. Um, But it was a really wonderful way to just learn about like a lot of the news that was happening about sea creatures, about the ocean, I learned about so many deep sea creatures just by doing that job because I got really fascinated by just like what they were finding and how weird and gelatinous everything looked. So I think... I didn't realize that would sort of be the basis of research for the book when I was doing it. But when I started writing the book as a column for Catapult, where I was sort of writing very early versions of these essays, when I was trying to think, like, what sea creatures do I know? (laughs) Like, what sea creatures (laughs) excite me? Like, a lot of them I had encountered on that job. And then once I sort of started reporting them for the book, I read a lot of scientific papers and like popular science coverage by Ed Yong and many other science writers learn more about the creatures. But I feel like, you know, it is hard to sort of get to know them. And I really appreciate that job.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even so many of the creatures you talk about have really only been spotted by submarines. <laughs> so so there's there is a barrier to entry into <laughs> like actually getting to know them tell me a little bit about the idea of applying some of these sea creatures traits to your life in a way that isn't you don't anthropomorphize that much and <laughs> and it doesn't seem some of the creatures seem like pretty clear like we see a metaphor right away and some of the others take a little longer
1: yeah i mean they the book really started with one metaphor and one creature which was the octopus um which is this deep sea octopus uh named granaled boreopacifica, pacifica which i learned how to pronounce for the audiobook and now i say I all listen the time to the audiobook <laughs> oh so God.
0: that i could hear you pronounce these things rather than me trying to say them
1: <laughs> wow thank you so much it's so wild to read an audiobook. I feel like I was really scared of the Latin words, but then everything that really was difficult was like French. And I was like, why are there so many French words (laughs) in this book? But... Yeah, so I learned about this deep sea octopus, Granoledony borea pacifica, who brooded her eggs for four and a half years. When brooding your eggs as an octopus, just means that basically you sit on them and you gently wave water over the eggs with your arms. You keep them clean, you, you know get fresh oxygen over the eggs, but you can't leave them or else they will be eaten because eggs are such rich nutrients <laughs> for anything in the sea, especially the deep sea. So that means if you're a mother octopus, you really can't leave to hunt. So basically, All mother octopuses for at least a quarter of their life just spend that final period of their life sitting on their eggs and basically starving. And then once their eggs hatch, the mother octopus dies. And when I learned about this one particular octopus, it was for this job writing aggregate of content. And I was seeing all these stories that were like, Mother of the Year, octopus, (laughs) like this octopus is the ultimate mother. And it felt like both astounding, just like what she had experienced, but also deeply sad. And I just kept thinking about this octopus after I had written my like 300 word story about it for the site. And I was just trying to really think like why I felt this deep connection. And I guess it just, it seems obvious now, but I think it took me some time to realize that it just made me think about my own mother and our shared relationships with disordered eating and how I inherited a lot of my ideas about what my body should look like or what my diet should be from my mother. And like, sort of the anger that I felt for a long time, but also sort of the understanding that we've been able to reach like over a series of conversations. And so that felt like a very obvious metaphor and a very easy route in to see if this format of sort of telling my story alongside the story of a sea creature would work. But you're right, like a lot of the other <laughs> essays in the book, the metaphor is less obvious or sort of more more sprawling, more tenuous. Um, but I really, I don't know, I really liked that because I felt like it gave me a route in to talk about creatures with I think more distance between us whether that's like in the popular culture like octopuses are so popular everyone loves them there's so many documentaries that everyone's like you should watch them and it's like I won't it sort of let me explore something like a salp which is a (laughs) gelatinous zooplankton that sort of shifts between like an asexual and solitary stage of life and a colonial sexual stage of life so salps spend part of their life just as these like drifting little barrels and they grow these clones, these chain of clones inside their belly, and then the clones break free and then become the colonial stage of the Selp. So a Selp is both an individual and a colony. And that was so fascinating to me. And like, I don't have, yeah, I guess like a personal experience where I have been like (laughs) clones. (laughs) But it just made me think about times, you know, that I have spent in very close communion with like other people or felt like, you know, when I'm marching in a protest or something like I was a part of a super organism and sort of how crowd movements work, like how crowd care looks. And so that became the basis of an essay about sort of my queer community and the Dyke March on Pride and the gay beach of New York and sort of how like held and also deeply connected to everyone else I feel in that space. And that, I mean, that metaphor, I think I really like it, but it really started because I saw these gelatinous organisms on the beach and then I was like oh what are they
0: and it took you a while to find out
1: yeah so I I saw these clear blobs of goo (laughs) one September in Reese and I they were it was just so wild because it, it really is this beach that feels like a club it feels like a queer space more than it does a natural space and I guess writing this book I think really helped me realize that like natural spaces and queer spaces can coexist and they sort of be found however you want to but i love just watching all these people on the beach like bring like hold these blobs up to the light and be like are these fish eggs are they baby jellyfish like do they sting and like we were doing citizen science even though i didn't really realize it at the time and when i started to write the book i was like oh maybe i should just figure out what those things were i didn't even pitch this essay as like a part of my proposal um I didn't think about it until I was just in my bedroom in the pandemic. And I emailed a bunch of park rangers and professors and various like people who are in charge of sort of these data sets of creatures that live around Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge in New York, but no one was able to tell me. And when I suggested that they were selps because that's what they seemed like in my online research, they were like, it's probably not salps, it's probably comb jellies and That was frustrating because I was like, oh, like I want it for the essay to be Selps because Selps is like (laughs) a more interesting organism to make these connections from. And I was thinking about like queer memory and sort of like fabulation and history and how sometimes you have to be able to sort of think with creativity and imagination to like understand histories that did very much happen but weren't recorded. And so Mm. I chose to remember them as Selps and chose to write about them in this piece but then like after I had turned in the book I was at this queer surfing club in the Rockaways and I saw the blobs like for the first time since (laughs) like that September so many years ago and I just like I was like surrounded by queer and trans people surfing I had surfed for the first time like I just felt like I was already so high and then I saw these blobs and I like ran (laughs) to these surfers (laughs) and I was like I, like, I have a very special connection with these, like, creatures, like, they're so special to me, and one of the surfers who runs this club, his name is Momo, they just, like, looked at me, and they were like, those are selps, like, I see them all the time in the water when I'm surfing, they're just, like, in these big chains, and I reach down and I touch them, and I was, like, (laughs) had, like... (laughs) A moment on the beach where I was like it's so it feels so special and so meaningful that this knowledge like existed in community and I feel so stupid for just like only going to the experts yeah, yeah quote, to the
0: unquote. experts
1: who it's like do you spend as much time like on Reese like as a random gay person like maybe not
0: <laughs> I love the idea that they're even like were buoyant like you felt like you, they were helping you to stay up
1: yeah, it's really wild. If you ever have a chance to swim with salps, it really feels like someone put you in a cup of boba, like they're so slimy. It's <laughs> amazing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about craft, because especially in your essay about necropsy and drawing the corpses of whales, you talk about how you read this guide that says don't worry about the technical language just yet just like just describe what you see and I feel like that's partly what you did throughout your collection and there's a line between you know all of the technical terms but you make this easy for the general reader (laughs) to understand and I imagine that's a lot of push and pull
1: yeah thank you for that question I mean the Marine mammal necropsy guide that you mentioned was really. I encountered it early in the research of the book, and I, I guess I like approached this book thinking, you know, so much of scientific knowledge like is inaccessible to the public, and I feel very lucky that I know how to read certain papers, but still, many papers are like so confusing that I really need to talk to the researcher to understand them, and I think I sort of had this mode, like this mindset of defiance of like, I'm going to be the translator of like the scientific knowledge and like bring it, you know, alive in my book. But I think I was continually surprised by like resources that do exist about sort of doing citizen science or like, yeah, like if you happen to see a whale that washes up, like you have all the knowledge you need to like share that with like officials who come later, like you can notice, you can watch, you can look. And that guide was really, yeah, it was a really helpful frame to think about, like, the ways in which I could try to approach to understand these creatures outside of sort of the traditional mode of writing about them, which is very impersonal and very objective and often, like, yeah, I think looks to scientists as like, you explain this to me. Mm -hmm. And I did really want to be able to forge my own, like, connections and meaning from these creatures, like, alongside the science, um, so, yeah, I hope that I was able to sort of make it accessible. And I really appreciate, yeah, you bringing up that guide because I don't think I realized how much it sort of framed my thinking for how I wanted to translate the knowledge in the book.
0: You did a great job. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to look into some specifics from some essays because mm-hmm. I have some questions for you. I would like to know more about hydrothermal vents And the Yeti crabs who live in darkness and survive, thrive (laughs) because of these vents.
1: Yeah, so hydrothermal vents and cold seeps, which are not actually cold, they're quite hot, they're called cold seeps. They are these sort of oases on the deep sea floor where cracks in the earth allow geothermally heated water to sort of rise up. And most of the water in the truly deep sea is just like a hair above freezing. It's like 39 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it's very hard for a lot of organisms to live. Like the deep sea is very cold, it slows metabolisms, it makes it hard to sort of get energy. But hydrothermal vents are just these spaces of immense warmth and also alternative sources of energy. So most creatures on land or closer to the sun rely on photosynthesis. Like we don't photosynthesize, but we eat, you know, creatures that do or plants that do. Um, And, a lot of that energy that's gained from the sun, it just takes a really long time to filter down to the bottom of the ocean. And it mostly arrives in the form of marine snow, which is like a fancy, beautiful term for the flakes of like dead flesh and mucus and snot and poop, (laughs) that kind of rain down
0: i was fascinated by learning that sorry keep going <laughs> oh yeah no i mean it's
1: so beautiful and like i would recommend anyone checking out the monterey bay aquarium research institute's youtube video series where they just will sort of film creatures they see in the deep sea I mean in every single video you can see marine snow behind it it looks almost like the creatures are like against deep space because you know it's so so dark and this oh. the flex they they look to me like tiny distant stars But yeah, it's hard to make a living off of marine snow, like just eating these very minuscule shreds. And so if you can get an alternative energy source like that can be more sustainable and sort of provide like these greater bursts of food, like that can be life-changing. And around hydrothermal vents, a lot of organisms rely on this mode of energy called chemosynthesis, which is like photosynthesis, except instead of the sun, you're converting chemicals into energy. And so there is like, Sulfur-fixing bacteria that takes the chemicals that come out of this geothermally heated water and turn it into energy. And then the Yeti crabs, which are these like white crabs with long claws that are kind of bristly, they have this bacteria growing on their claws. And they just wave their claws like back and forth over the water of a cold seep. And that allows the bacteria to thrive. And then the Yeti crabs just like farm that bacteria and eat it. And when I learned about that, I was shocked. And I was also, I just kept on thinking about the idea of like chosen family as a queer concept and how you choose what nourishes you. And I was like, this is exactly what the crabs are doing.
0: You even say that they danced. And so you and the crabs found the right place to dance. (laughs)
1: Exactly. I mean, I also, yeah, not to recommend another video, but it's very cool to watch these crabs just like wave their claws back and forth. It really just looks like a little rave.
0: Amazing. That's so fun. I feel like to go back a little bit, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I had to have known somewhere inside, but I don't think anyone ever told me that keeping a goldfish in a bowl is maybe not the best way for them to thrive. And that metaphor is for anyone who grew up in the suburbs, I feel <laughs> like <laughs> the, the idea that they can thrive when you let them go free. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So the first essay in the book is not technically about a sea creature. It's about a goldfish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually adapted from an essay that I wrote in college, which was much more narrowly focused and sort of animal rightsy. It was like, don't keep goldfish in bowls. (laughs) And I wrote it because my college, I don't know how common this is when like in the winter, they'd be like, are you feeling depressed? Like come pick up a free goldfish. And they would just like give out goldfish to students. And it made me really angry because I had kept fish as a kid and knew that it's just not like <laughs> it's just not sustainable for the goldfish or for you to like keep something like that in a bowl because goldfish need a lot of space. Like they are basically domesticated carp. And if they're, you know, in the wild, they can grow to like a foot long. They can get really big. And if you keep them, In a bowl or in a small tank, like they will really only grow to the size of that bowl and will often just poison themselves to death because goldfish pee like more than most fish. And most people who just keep a goldfish in a bowl and like don't clean the water, your goldfish is just creating toxic levels of ammonia inside that bowl. So I was trying to adapt this essay for this book. And I was really, as you mentioned, like fixated on this metaphor of being in a bowl feels like growing up in the suburbs. It feels like you're trapped. It feels like you want to get out. And that can feel really, stifling. And I was thinking about this like horrible high school that I went to that really was fixated <laughs> on Stanford and grades and how I felt like that was my only route out. But that was, I think the mindset that I had brought to this essay, I was going to sort of explain like the right way to keep goldfish. But then in in my process of research, that's when I learned about feral goldfish, mm-hmm. which I didn't know about when I started the essay and really transformed like my idea of the goldfish and made me question the bias that I had brought <laughs> to the to the essay and to my understanding of goldfish because feral goldfish, as their name suggests, are living in the wild, in lakes, in rivers. They grow incredibly big. They're omnivores, so they can basically eat anything. They outcompete native fish. They balloon in size. There are these wild photos of park rangers just holding up goldfish that look like pit bulls. <laughs> like they're not that big, but they're just, they're so they're hefty. They look really swole. And I just couldn't help but feel like inspired by, yeah, this creature that I feel like everyone underestimates people look to more as like an ornament than a pet, like becomes just this like entirely new creature if given the, the, you know, abundance. And it made me think about, yeah, the ways that I felt like I had broken free of my childhood and been able to create a space where I was able to like surprise myself.
0: I love that. Let's talk about the sand striker, which sounds terrifying. That's the, the creature you described that I least want to see a real video about.
1: <laughs> they are unfortunately, um, I find them very beautiful, but they are also spooky.
0: <laughs> and they were once called the Bobbit, which is wild.
1: Yeah. <laughs> did you learn about the worms in the essay?
0: Yeah, I did. So okay. so yeah, tell me.
1: So I learned about the sand striker, formerly known as the Bobbit worm in, I think it was Blue Planet 2, where there's this segment of just these really terrifying, but rainbow worms that grow like feet long. They bury their entire body in the sand and they just have their like mandibles outstretched out of the sand with their little feelers, just like waiting for a fish to come by and then clap down on that fish and drag that fish into its burrow of sand and feast on it. And they were originally called the Bobbitt worm because the scientists who discovered them discovered the worm in, I think, waters around Indonesia around the same time as John Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt were in this court case about how Lorena Bobbitt cut off her abusive husband's penis with a knife. And then the penis was later reattached. And the scientist was like, this, you know, this scary worm, (laughs) like, has these big jaws and they sort of clamp down, like I'll call it the bobbit worm. And scientists have always really hated that name because bobbit worms do not actually like slice anything. They just grab (laughs) it with their teeth and they also- yeah, it just created a lot of like misinformation about this these worms and like their sexual practices and whether they have penises, like they don't have penises. None of
0: them had porn careers afterwards. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, it's yeah, I mean, it's just a worm that's trying to eat. And unfortunately, we find it gross. But it reminded me, especially in the Blue Planet segment of just like this, you know, creature that sort of like lurks and cr- creates this ambiance of fear in this like place that otherwise feels very familiar. Like reef fish, you know, they live around one reef and they're always going to be predators on the reef and they just have to learn to avoid and like find ways to protect themselves from, from those predators. And this was one of the essays that sort of began as a personal experience that I wanted to write about my own experiences with sexual assault. And I was trying to find a route in and thought about various animals. And this is the one that I felt Yeah, it was like, I don't know, made the most sense to me. And it purely was initially just seeing this worm like lurk under the sand and thinking about times in which I have felt unsafe. And then when I started writing into it, then I realized that there was the Bobbitt connection, which now feels so obvious, but it wasn't something that I had thought about going into it.
0: I I love that. And yeah, you talk about in the beginning of the essay that, yeah, you're the first thing that so many people learn about danger is to be aware of strangers, be aware of your surroundings, look behind the bushes kind of thing. (laughs) And then it gets a little more complicated as we get older.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I felt like it was an essay that really started with, yeah, like, I don't know, thinking about the threats that, you know, you live with or that you coexist with or that you sort of have to have conversations with. And it started off as an essay really about this worm and sort of about the idea of a predator and about the idea of fear. But in my process of research, like I learned about these fish that basically have these like whisper networks where they can identify like these worms in the sand and then they all spit water like little jets of water to reveal the worm's location and basically make the worm either burrow down or like go somewhere else and it was really like yeah I was like I don't know this essay is about the fish like this essay is about me and all of my friends who have gone through these experiences and is sort of more about like Yeah, how do we keep each other safe and how do we find ways to survive? Which, yeah, I don't know. Every a lot of these essays I feel like the metaphors really kept unfolding as I just trusted in like the process of research.
0: Yeah. A a shitty medium men list
1: for (laughs) for fish.
0: Tiny little fish. Let's end on the jellyfish because I think That's one of the ones that I feel like I know this, that Mm. there's even this new book called Jellyfish Age Backwards. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's from my same publisher. And they were like, do you like, we need to like publish your books at different times. And I was like, okay, they're quite different, but yeah.
0: I definitely didn't know what the catalyst was for all of this rebirth.
1: Yeah. So The immortal jellyfish, or Turritopsis dorni, I first learned about them in this New York Times magazine feature, I think by Nathaniel Rich. Maybe I got that wrong. But it's this beautiful feature about these jellyfish, which can age backwards into a kind of adolescence. So jellyfish have several life stages where they sort of first start off as a polyp, which is like a sessile, branched, almost like tree-like thing. And then from the arms of the polyp, they will sort of produce these little clones of Medusas, which is like the final bell shape of the jellyfish that we most associate with jellyfish. And the Medusas, the adult Medusas of the immortal jellyfish, if they are wounded or experience some kind of, yeah, harm, can basically age backwards into the polyp stage and then re-regrow, which is as some scientists have framed it, a kind of immortality. And this initial feature that I read about them in, it was very much focused on what the immortal jellyfish could tell us about our own immortality. Like, could we unlock the secrets of human longevity from this jellyfish, which is a frame that I find really frustrating and tired, like in science journalism (laughs) of like, look at how this animal can help us. (laughs) Not, yeah, not an approach that I relate to. And when I was reading that feature, as you mentioned, I was... I just felt so sad at like learning about the specifics of how you can sort of loop these jellyfish into immortality, which is basically like you stab them with a needle 50 times so that they're just traumatized enough to not die, but actually like, you know, regress back into polyphood. And I mean, jellyfish, like they don't have emotions. They can't feel pain. Like it's not, you know, animal torture in the way that, you know, that kind of experimentation on another animal would be, but it still felt yeah, like that was a part of the story that was like the most important part of the story for me. And it made me think about what I would want to do if I could go back and also like the reasons that I have for wanting to go back to my adolescence. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of spawned in its initial form on the catapult column, an essay that was sort of me imagining like various like readers of my adolescence, but it was also the final essay that I worked on in the book. And I was so tired (laughs) of the book at that point and like looking at myself and trying to mine parts of my life, which I haven't lived that long and I haven't had a very interesting life. And I was like, this feels very boring. And so I posed my editor, Jean Garnett, who was so wonderful, just like the question of like, what if I involved other people in this essay? And so Mm. it sort of became this essay where I wrote the structure of, you know, this is how The Immortal Jellyfish works. This is how it can go back and invited various queer and trans people to sort of reimagine and like fabulate their own alternative childhoods, like what they would have given themselves, what they would have done, who they would have been. And it was very, it was like the most inspiring part of the book process for me. It's
0: so lovely and such a hopeful, wonderful note to end on. So, so thank you. Before we go though, Sabrina, will you please recommend a couple of books for us?
1: Yes. Thank you so much for asking. The book that I finished most recently that I absolutely loved Gossip Girl fanfic novella is the full title. And it's by Charlie Mark Brider. And it is one of the weirdest books I've ever read. It is a Gossip Girl fanfiction novella. I have never seen Gossip Girl, but it reimagines several of the characters as trans and like Also tells the story of like a writer on the reboot and sort of uses these questions of like wealth and privilege and gossip to explore like what hormone access could look like and like sort of who is allowed to transition. But it also includes like fan fiction about like Charlie XCX and like several very very surreal sequences where one of the characters like meets the late philosopher or the late theorist Lauren Berlant. It's really weird, but I loved it. Yeah. That sounds Um, great. It was really good. And then the other book I wanted to recommend is Sarah Land by Sam Cohen, which is a short story collection about various people named Sarah going through, like, <laughs> I don't know, weird, joyful, sometimes traumatizing experiences. It's really fun. I bought it because the cover was so cool and had a dolphin on it. And one of the stories is about dolphins, but it, it's just like, I think I'm trying to. I don't know if I don't know if you experience this, but in in the book writing process, I was like, I don't want to read any more books about like sea creatures. I don't want to read Uh, any more nonfiction. So I'm just reading fun. Yeah, fun fiction.
0: That's perfect. Thank you so much, Sabrina. The book is called How Far the Light Reaches and it's
1: out now. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.